Hello there, welcome to the Climate Resilience Podcast, Series 2 on the Shoalhaven. Water sensitive urban design is our focus for the series, and today we are in development. Climate Resilience is a podcast of local government New South Wales. I'm Gretchen Miller, and in this episode, we're visiting a couple of residential developments in the city of Wollongong and looking at the water-sensitive urban design elements, which have been or will be handed over to council to manage. So what is water-sensitive urban design and how do councils and developers best work together to provide it effectively? What defines great practice? What have we done well in the past and how can we learn from our mistakes? It's a big job. It's iterative. That is, as we learn, we keep refining. While some progress has been made, councils and their communities are at the start of this journey. There's so much more that needs to be done. Hi. How are you going? Yeah, good. Yourself? Wow, yeah, good. How's your drive? Oh, good. Yeah. I I quite like driving. With me is Emma Strauss, water-sensitive urban design project manager from the Illawarra Shoalhaven Joint Organisation, and Andrew Heaven, development engineer manager from Wollongong City Council. Both our guests are passionate about how councils and developers can progress water-sensitive urban design so it's fully integrated into all aspects of community life. We're standing in stage two of the West Upto Urban Release Area, so it's very much an active release area. And it's tricky because this is traditionally a floodplain, so we're developing a floodplain. So these spaces for water is really important to allow the housing to even occur, having these basins for water to be stored. We're visiting two different land releases today, but they share a creek. One is in the foothills of the escarpment with larger blocks retaining some tree cover. The other lies on flatter floodplain ground below and sits on the edge of an artificial wetland. And it's here that we start with the brand new houses and building and lawn mowing going on all around us. Emma and Andrew paint the picture. This is the stormwater detention basin. Right. A wet basin, we call these ones. Sometimes we have detention basins that are dry basins, so they're designed to stay dry most of the time, and then in those flood events, that's when they hold water. So what we've got is a beautiful escarpment in the background, which isn't that far away, and then you've got some houses, then you've got sort of coming down from the escarpment, the creek, but in front of the creek is a number of dams and yes. they, they all feed in eventually to the creek. So this is separate to the creek though, this dam. It does, it sits offline. We call this an offline basin. And because the purpose of it is to allow the water to slow down and all of the um, nutrients and some of the, I guess, contaminants to drop out into the soil in the sludge, and then the cleaner water can continue to flow on. This is the southwest. Mm. These are still the 450 standard lot size, 450 metres squared. There's some pretty large houses on those. Block to block, yeah, they're filling the block. block. They're still, compared to other areas, it's a relatively large block. So the green amenity that we appear to have at the moment, these ponds will be surrounded by homes. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. and almost right down to the water, in fact. Maybe, what's that, 50 metres, 20 metres? 
So hopefully we'll see, along with the development of the other side and that paddock over there, we will see some of the embellishment of the riparian corridor. I would like to see revegetation, <laughs> I guess reinstating it to probably its more natural form. It's been disturbed for quite a long time. It's not in a state of natural flow as it is at the moment anyway because it's been farmed for a good 150 years or so and the farming really disrupts the normal pattern for the normal hydrology cycles. So you can see there's a lot of weeds, a lot of disruption, only a couple of trees here and there because it's been probably logged. It'd be great to see some natural form re-establishing, so getting rid of the weeds, allowing space for the natives and bringing some of that back to this area. If it is a floodplain, what are the predictions for extreme weather in this area? Well, for our region, the predictions are that we're going to start seeing more hotter days, less cold nights, just a trend for um, increasing temperatures. We're also going to see reduced rainfall in spring and increased rainfall in autumn. So it's a bit of a flip to the rainfall and probably more extreme events in, in the rainfall as well. So having these spaces for the water is really really important but more than that it's important that we start looking at you know being efficient with water use and really maintaining some support to the natural systems and keeping that sort of social ecological balance because as our natural systems are pressed so too will the the human systems so you know making sure that we're supporting the growth of trees and keeping water nearby them so they can stay strong and that will in turn help us in mitigating some of their heat impacts. Out here on the floodplain, it gets really hot. I don't know if you've been out here in summer, but it's really, really hot, like 40-something degrees when it's like in the middle of the day. It can be really quite confronting, the heat, and that's only going to get worse. So that's, I guess, for us, it's how can we vis visualise this area feeling comfortable when we're going to have regularly days like that. So we need lots of shade, we need lots of open space, and we need these areas with water to bring the temperatures down. There's a tern just sitting there. It's a very good advertisement. So the ponds are working environmentally. So far. I mean, there was water here anyway. So before we saw urban development, this was a farm with a couple of dams that were quite sizey. So I think the birds and everything that, have, that are here already are quite used to there being a couple of ponds and this is where they come to forage. And to that point, there's also a lot of microbats in this area. And when, when there's a pond like this and a kind of tall tree, it's often where they're nesting because they live off the small insects that live on the water. Right. For this release area, it's super important that we keep a number of these water bodies like this to support the biodiversity in the region. How do these waterways function, Andrew? So what we've got here is a wetland system, basically. So, yeah, the original farm dams, but what they've done here is they're creating, I guess, a wetland system. So we've got overbank planting, a lot of native vegetation, what will become quite large trees as well to provide a lot of shade. The edges, we've got our macrophyte planting, our shallower areas. Eventually those will really grow out, thicken out, provide some refuge for, for birds, water species, and then we've got some deeper 
areas within the wetland that provides water clarity, space for settlement to occur for any sediments as well. But the long-term goal for this area is this combination of these shallow areas, the macrophytes, the big planting, big shade trees, and then these deeper water areas. helps with everything from controlling mosquitoes to yeah, providing a nice little place for wildlife as well. So you're trying to slow the water down as it leaves the site, is that the idea? Uh, these have got some storage components to it, but with the way that this functions initially, these were two separate dams, and so what we've got here, you can see this structure through here. So these do slow the water down, but this will hold water, and then for the larger storm events, this fills up, and we've got some overflow through these culverts here, and in fact where we're standing will also overtop in even larger events as well and sort of act as a weir. And then again, we've got even the, the bigger waterway here to the north. It behaves in, in a similar way, holds water, and then for the larger storm events will overtop and, and enter the watercourse to the north. What I wonder is, how easy is it to maintain a site like this? So it looks beautiful at the moment, it's just been built, but what happens when the vegetation maybe dies or the, the filtering system is yep. going to get clogged up? What do you do then? Something I didn't mention as well, we've got some gross pollutant traps so we've got the residential area and the commercial area just nearby when it's developed that drain into gross pollutant traps some of our first checks will be for those gbts and making sure that we're cleaning those out regularly the creek edges we can check for any big pollutants so what's been overflowed so council could check to see what rubbish we've got through there but then in terms of the wetland and how it's functioning, you know, one of the biggest challenges is maintaining the capacity and the performance. And so part of that might be, let's say, every 12 months, we would come out and check the depths, for instance, to see how much sediment are we getting there. Particularly these deeper areas, what will happen is if it becomes too shallow, you'll see the macrophytes will spread out. Council, as an asset owner, there are some challenges with these, but part of it is really about, for us, understanding what the upfront costs are through the development process. What are our obligations for, for maintenance to keep this in a good state? And we might have some inspection staff might come out every three months, check a couple of key locations, and then, like I was saying, every 12 months we might come out and check depths and some of the maintenance guidelines will probably give us an idea of what that threshold is. And, in fact, I think for this particular one, we've actually got scope for dewatering, which allows us to remove the water, remove the sediment and allow those flows back in. And that is a challenge and a cost for any organisation. But mm. really for us it's to, to strike that balance about how can we do that effectively and efficiently and, and that is a learning and iterative process for, for a lot of councils over time to figure out what works for them. So hydraulically it works, right? In terms of water quality outcomes, I assume you're hopeful that this filtering system will um, feed back into the creek in a way that sustains life. Yep. But can it ever become a system that doesn't need maintenance? In my mind, that would be an ideal. But really, I think when I look at water-sensitive urban design and how the language around it has changed over the last, for me, over the last 15 years, where... It was purely about delivering systems that provide certain water quality targets and then councils figuring out, well, what are those systems and how can we look after it? It's now about water-sensitive communities. How do we balance 
ecological biodiversity outcomes versus just let's just focus on water quality and as opposed to the broader issues that we need to do. So for me, it would be a combination of trying to look at, well, what do natural systems do? What's the subsoil systems composed of? Each location is unique, what used to be here. How can we replicate that really, really well? Are we there yet? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think what we have to acknowledge is that, as you say, it is iterative. Yeah, so a lot of that language is is also developing around, you know, climate change, for instance. So much more extreme weather events, bigger droughts, heat waves, you know, and then more extreme storms, so bigger flood events. So how do we create systems... Um, that can adapt. So we've chatted in the past about a couple of years ago, well, the, the end of the drought, and we do have a wet summer at the moment, but we're, we're off the back of nine or ten years of a range of different challenges in terms of water supply. And how are we reusing water? Is it everything just hitting the roof, hitting the road, getting into the pipe, and we're just pushing it straight out to a creek? Or are there better ways that we can capture and utilise that water, whether it's for stormwater harvesting, rethinking what we do with vegetated areas you know this spot that we're looking at now it's quite engineered so and by that you mean macrophytes are in rows yeah yeah Yeah, we've got uh you know we've got some nice yeah there's some nice lines around here and you know and it will change organically as the flora nature takes over over, but we you know we're still constrained we've got some hard edges retaining walls and some hard sort of engineering solutions in here But when we go and look at other communities, and there's good examples across Australia where we're looking at, well, how do we provide urban development that is water-wise and how are we limiting our reliance on whether it's as a resident or as a council on using available resources? How can we design these systems to be more efficient? What does efficiency mean, though? Because I suspect that what you don't want is to be efficiently rushing water through the landscape. No. No, that's exactly right. That's what's changed in water-sensitive urban design, and as that concept came out of CSIRO in 98, really it was a way of addressing what we used to do in the 70s and 80s, which was put huge concrete swales everywhere to rush the water away so we didn't get flooding in our houses. Now we've got so much more knowledge around how we need to be using water and retaining water and actually keeping it within our landscapes. And that recognition that, yes, we actually want to live near water. We need it to live. So does all of the biodiversity around us. What are we doing to support that? So we've got hydraulically it's working. The water outcomes are likely to be pretty good. What about biodiversity? Is this enough to build an environment that does have biodiversity from the soil you know to the skies Emma what do you think I fear for the transition period honestly because as we are standing here in the scorching sun there are no trees so you know when the development happens the trees go out so you know a lot of the animals leave because their habitat's not there anymore all we can hope I guess in this scenario is that these trees establish themselves nice and quick these ones we've planted and that we can get those that habitats happening for the flora and, and fauna mm. so we can welcome them all back yeah. but I think having a bit more of a staged approach to development does help these sort of things because there's a habitat so I guess for us it's really important that we're paying attention to the species coming in that we're planting the sort of stuff that's going to support what is endemic to this area and, and what you'll see is if you look at the developments from 10 years ago, four or five years ago to 
the neighbourhood plans that we're looking at now, a much stronger drive for increased biodiversity, increased open space. You know, these footpaths, for instance, and the street trees, this is your stock standard approach. I don't know, a three, three and a half metre footpath surfaces running in underneath, and let's just hope that the trees right. can survive. <laughs> but what we're doing now, you know, we do have some landscape guidelines and policies that will talk to what we want to see in, in the street trees. But certainly that some of the big changes, for instance, when we're talking about biodiversity, it's making sure that in the developments that we've got coming up and the areas that are being rezoned that we're putting aside increased space for that biodiversity. So we've got increased soil volumes and less impacts on the street trees. So we actually get much better outcomes in terms of street trees and that contributes to shade and cooling for some of these pretty harsh areas in terms of the concrete and the roads and the roofs. Emma, I want to ask about, you know, in your role at the Illawarra-Shoalhaven Joint Organisation, how you're seeing councils come together on these developments and how you make decisions on what's acceptable and what works. How do you have that broad picture as well as being flexible to the particular landscape in which any one development might occur? So for me, I've really focused on, and what I think helps galvanise our group, is keeping that higher level view that we are all very interested in, and that is about our water sensitive communities, rather than drilling it down too much into the detailed design aspect. That is an aspect of this project. However, what we all come together with quite easily is about the water sensitive communities and the need for, for that awareness building and connecting on those similar themes. So... For me, it's really about boosting that awareness, coming together, having discussion around what our councils are and are not doing and what we can learn from each other. How do we ensure that something like this is actually genuinely adaptable to climate disruption, which we are starting to experience? So this is what these sort of projects are about, shifting that thinking and including what the projections are going to be or what the projections are saying we might experience in the future. So that includes along our coastlines, that there is enough space to sort of support the sand dunes and that there's a system that's being kept, I guess, in its natural state so it can go through its usual dynamic fluxes. And in areas like this, it's the same sort of thing. So when we see floods, that there is that capacity for nature to respond. So we've got space there. We don't have houses right on the bank. That there is enough, I guess, flexibility built in and designed in to the systems that we are then building on top of. The fact is, this was a porous ground. It was a farm. There was water going in and absorbing into the land. Now there is an increased hard surfaces. You've got roads, you've got driveways, big driveways, you've got roofs. So there has been a removal of the potential of this landscape to cope with drought and flood. So where is the balance? How do you get the balance? Regardless of how well you plant it, There's still a net loss here. We're going to go to a subdivision a a bit later on where they've removed the kerb and gutter for a big part of this estate and they've put in swales. Now, it sounds a bit going back to to what we've done before, but um, I remember talking to an environmental scientist years and years ago saying one of the best things we could do for water quality is remove the kerb and gutter and let the grass just grow. (laughs) Mm. I don't know if that's where where we're going to end up, but we still need to 
strike a balance on transport, the needs of families to work and function in a community, and we still need to provide that connectivity for them. We still need to provide a place where people know that their home's not going to be affected by a flood. And so we've got this sort of push and pull in terms of trying to find a balance where recognising, you know, we talk about ecosystem services that, that we get from an area and how do we better integrate because we're not separate to it's not you know it looks although here it looks like we've got houses on one side we've got a creek in a riparian area right in the middle but the reality is is that we're very in, intertwined with it much more connected than you think that is a good place to talk about ecosystem services what mm. does it mean there's probably four key areas that it covers provisioning which is your food and water cultural so what do we get out of it in terms of recreation space aesthetics even spiritual for people in terms of landscape regulating which is our climate and then we've got supporting services which is again what you were talking about nutrient cycling soil formation as organizations as local governments we need to get i guess a lot more discussion a lot more knowledge a lot more policy that talks around those key areas and a better understanding of how that all fits together How might we put policy into practice? Is it possible to build something like this in such a way that it functions so well in an ecological system sense that it self-maintains? So, look, for me, it's what has nature provided us and what don't we touch, which is important, and what we don't impact on versus, well, what are we going to engineer or construct? And as Emma said, there's this transition from the 70s and the 80s where it's just pits and pipes to people starting to talk about well how do we rebuild the creek how do we create a lake or how do we think about wetlands and what they contribute to biodiversity water quality how do we do that so it better replicates how nature operates one of the challenges for us is these systems naturally move over time so you get sediment coming in creeks going into lakes and deltas moving as sediments deposited (laughs) One of the challenges for us is we've locked in the urban landscape around it and so as long as we're doing that, there is always going to be a need for us, I think, to have to come in and and to manage that. But certainly in terms of an ideal outcome for me is a wetland and a creek system where we just let the vegetation go. We don't need to come in and intervene. That to me is the ideal You know, an example which was a first for me when talking to developers and their engineers where you do get a lot of stock standard solutions was a very enthusiastic consultant wanting to design and construct a billabong as as part of that solution. And, And how's that different to a wetland? So to me a billabong is something that can hold water but can dry out as well. You'd have soil conditions that would need to replicate what that looks like in a given area. You also need planting that can withstand a lack of water but also be able to cope with once it's inundated with water as well. Haven't seen that design (laughs) come through yet. But, you know, the fact that we've got... Yeah, totally (laughs) hypothetical. But the fact that we've got consultants talking about it is, 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 you know, something positive. Yeah. Yeah. We go on to discuss how else individuals and citizens can contribute to water-sensitive urban design and water-sensitive communities. Like being aware that when we wash our cars on the road, the soapy water goes straight down the drain to the nearest waterway. In this development, that's the dam. And how do we avoid adding to the burden carried by that dam? 
And we talk about how having lawn means nitrogen-based fertilisers and poisons in the runoff. But a rain garden, as keen gardeners in the ACT are taking up, mitigates that issue. Basically, it's a, a space where we've planted native vegetation. It's not grassed, so it's not getting treated with anything like this. And there's usually a bit of guttering around the outside of it. So it's almost like a little bucket for water to sit in and support those trees. The trees will soak up all the water and it's, it's acting like a little mini sponge along the street. There's some developments in the ACT that have like a series of them all the way down the street. It's a way of slowing the water flow down. It keeps water out of the gutter and also it's supporting the growth of those trees. Time to move on up towards the other development Andrew mentioned earlier where the curb and guttering has largely been removed. This one sits in the foothills of the escarpment. A dry basin lies in front of us, leading to the creek that is planted out to transition it back to a more natural state. So they've left a few remnant trees, makes a big difference I think just having those trees along the creek line there. and We talk in the shade of a mature old fig tree that makes quite a difference to the amenity of the development and speak about how the history of mining in the area was paid homage to by building mining equipment into the playground. It's just a big grassed area with some sort of hilly sides, which you can sort of imagine as a bit of a bowl. And it's right on the edge of just a little community park. So this urban development has enabled the establishment of the riparian corridor to sort of resemble what would be a natural riparian corridor. So what is the difference in terms of approval processes and philosophy in the approach to these two? Gosh, where do we start? <laughs> there was a fundamental difference in the approach from the developer. The developer was is a developer that's been developing within this region for a really long time, third generation. They had a real legacy they wanted to leave. There was a really different ethos in the way that they do their development. And the, I guess the other thing is the learnings have been different. I think certainly with this, this site, it's a design that really looks at what are the natural features around it, creating a space that really values living in this location. Part of it is the retention of a lot of the natural features embellishment of some areas that were degraded and having spent 20 years involved in subdivisions and developments I talk about it, my team doing a tour of engineering facilities to go and look at how things are done in different areas and by the end of the day we stopped talking about engineered solutions and we started talking about communities and the different types of designs that we were seeing across the area. I think for me what this one really shows is an effort to design to the natural features and to actually embellish those features because there's a, a recognition about what it contributes to the community. I think as Andrew touched on, it's really putting community at the centre of it. So the things that are valued in this area, it pays homage to the history of the region. But then we've got our dry basin here that's completely usable when it's not raining and right adjacent to the park. So it's a really nice, I guess, complementary set of assets that council ends up with. And then, you know, we're right on the side of the riparian corridor that's been embellished as well. So this is, is creating habitat. It's also creating habitat for humans, really, like 
ultimately we're looking at an area that is, is quite lovely to be in. It feels nice. Under this tree, it's cool. Yeah. All of these things that we're trying to do as planners for the future of these areas. So for this particular one, unlike the other one where, where it was a wetland, here we've got, again, a series of gross pollutant traps for the, for the big stuff. And we've probably got um, what you consider a more traditional bioretention system. So it's not necessarily a, a wetland like we saw before, but you know a basin that's got a clay liner, a drainage medium, subsoil drainage, and then some planting over the top. And that basically acts like a, a filter or water polishing device, I guess. But again, that's just focused on water quality outcome as opposed to some of the things we've spoken about, which is moving towards more water-sensitive communities in terms of overall design. So what I'm really interested in is the difference between managing just water flow and keeping the water nice and clean, which we want, as it goes out to the ocean how you can simply make that something that supports a more complicated ecology. So there's quite a few different ways of doing it. We're chatting about starting at the home, whether we're looking at opportunities for rain gardens. At the moment in New South Wales, we've got some requirements for for new houses to have rainwater tanks, for instance. Are there opportunities to increase the size of those rainwater tanks or are people just doing what is the minimum that they need to do You've got some other local council areas where they've actually set some minimums for for their own development approvals versus what happens under, say, complying development. We can look at the water reuse from whether it's curb and gutter or whether it's swales, driving the water into the subsoil drainage for the street trees. There's an example here for this particular, it's a dry basin, but on the edge we've got a little low-flow swale that is adding to some water quality as well, but it's also going directly into some of those riparian areas over there. We've got some other developments where we've got areas of bushland where you can have flush curbs, so rather than a standard stormwater drainage system... We with can the actually, curb and gutter. With the curb and gutter, where we're actually saying, you know what, we want to maintain flows, surface flows, into this area of bush. So there's, there's lots of different solutions. It's about what should we maintain through the development, what can we embellish through the development. As an asset owner for council, how can we make sure that those riparian areas or those planted areas are getting water so don't capture that stormwater and just push it straight out to a river or an ocean but how can we actually spread it through planted areas or or bush and again looking at at houses and people being a bit more water smart in terms of a recognition about well what does the rainwater tank contribute how much water do I use every time I flush the toilet should I be using the rainwater tank when I'm watering the garden as opposed to just the Sydney mains you'll have Sydney water looking at should we increase the size of our dams but I think we need to be looking at what can we do in these new release areas to minimise wastage whether it's what council needs to do or whether whatever the community needs to do as well. And so basically what we're looking at is future proofing aren't we? So We are looking at longer, drier periods. We're looking at more intense flooding. We're looking at, therefore, trying to keep water in the landscape. Is that essentially what we're doing here? Ultimately. And we're also looking at efficiencies, so making sure that we're not wasting water. We know in drought that water is the most valuable resource. We need it to live. Everything needs it to live. So, you know, in a future that has more droughts regularly and more severe, 
what are we doing with our water? Are we being efficient? Are we making sure that we've got that feedback loop and that we're um, using it to its best ability so we're not flushing our drinking water down the toilet? Maybe we've redesigned the system and it's grey water. Maybe we're using rainwater to wash our clothes instead of it being coming from our drinking water and mains. You know, these sort of things. So it's all those things from the community level right through to how we've actually designed the subdivision and these larger assets that goes into what is making this a more resilient community. So I wonder when councils are working with developers to build these public assets, basically, how do you prevent, and this is a theoretical question, it's not reflecting on what we've looked at today, how do you prevent developers kind of just squeezing them in as an afterthought? For me, I think part of it comes back to that early planning, making sure that you've got clear vision on the type of communities that we want to see, making sure that we've got strategies that help us develop policies and that support those outcomes. And not just some big, broad vision statements, but a clear set of criteria that supports certain design outcomes. And, you know, I've spoken to a few consultants who have said for them it's about certainty and time in terms of development outcomes. And so if a council's got robust standards, clear guidelines, certainly for the the consultants and the designers, they've got, you know, someone said to me once, it's really hard to kick a goal if you don't know where the goalposts are. So I think that's one of the key steps for any local government in getting those good design outcomes. And where you see the poorer design outcomes, nine out of ten times you'll find that the policies weren't necessarily there to provide the support for those better outcomes. And and the knowledge has changed over the years as well. But ultimately we're creating communities and, and the developers are part of it, the consultants are part of it and council's certainly part of it as well. Andrew Heaven from Wollongong Council and Emma Strauss from the Illawarra Shoalhaven Joint Organisation there. And this has been another episode of the Climate Resilience podcast series, part of the Local Government New South Wales Increasing Resilience to Climate Change project funded by the New South Wales Government. Please don't forget to check out our other episodes in this series, Water Collaborations, about how councils and water utilities work together, and Sponge City, about benchmarking your council's water sensitivity. Of course, our first series is still available and it's all about rural water use in increasingly drought-prone times. Check it out. I'm Gretchen Miller. Bye for now. Thank you, Emma and yeah, Andrew, no, for, no for joining us. Yeah. yeah. Hey. Excellent. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah. Legend. Thank you both. Yeah.